Wow, what a book. Huh? Wow, what an incredible book. And yet, you know what the world wants you to believe about this book? You can't trust it. The world wants you to believe that this book just can't be trusted to be the rule and norm and the source for understanding and building up life. The world wants you to just kind of take the book, put it on a shelf, and ignore it in all critical, valuable decision-making times, to ignore it in your grief and in your struggles, to ignore it when you're looking for guidance and understanding, to ignore it when you're trying to figure out what life is all about, to ignore the book and just put it on the shelf because the world wants you to believe. You just can't trust that book. It's just another book. We can see it right away in the book of Genesis where the evil one is in dialogue with Eve and plants that seed of understanding that says this book can't be trusted. Plants that seed of doubt about the book. Look, Look at it with me, will you? It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, what's he say? Did God really say? You see what he's doing right away? Did God really say? Does his word really say? Did he really tell you that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God, wait a minute. Did God, does the word really I mean, did God really make it clear to you? I mean, is, is that word trustworthy enough that it's accurate enough that, that you can make a, a good decision based on it? I mean, did God really make it that clear? Are, are you sure you're getting it right? Are, are you sure you're understanding what he really meant there? Did God really say? You see what the world wants to do? And the Bible tells us why the world wants to do this. Why the world wants to discredit God's word. If you go into Paul and you look at the next text, uh, Paul tells us why uh, he wants us to, the world wants us to doubt it. It comes out of uh, Romans 1 and uh, it talks about wrath. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who do what? Who suppress the truth. You see that? who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see, why does the world want to discredit the Word of God? If it discredits the Word of God, if it suppresses the Word of God, if it says the Word of God is no longer valid, then it can live any way it wants. Right? If it says the Word of God really can't be trusted, if it says the Word of God really doesn't have that authority, if it says the Word of God really isn't relevant to life, if it says the Word of God really just just doesn't have any application, it can ignore that Word and instead do whatever it wants. Do you see why the world wants you to believe that the Bible can't be trusted? This is what the world is about. It's trying to move us from that grounded place where Eve started out, who knew the Word, who was clear about what God wants and was able to make decisions based on God's Word. The Bible wants us, or the the world wants us to ignore the Bible and say it can't be trusted. You know this is true. You've heard those conversations. 
you maybe have been in some of those conversations, right? Where the world today casts the same doubt on the trustworthiness of God's Word, the Bible, right? It'd be in conversations that would uh, come at you with, you know, some things like this, some elements of doubt uh, like this, where they, they, they get in the conversation with you and they say things like, well, you know, the Bible, I mean... It, it just doesn't change with the times. It, it's just not relevant anymore. I mean, the Bible, right, it was fine in its day, and, you know, it was good way back then for Grandpa and Grandma and, and the folks way back then. But, you know, today, I mean, this is just a different world. This is just a different world. And, and so you can't trust the Bible today because it's just not up to speed. It's just not with today. Have we heard this argument? Isn't it true? Sure, what's the argument? Well, the argument is it's no longer relevant, it's no longer valid. You can start doubting it and questioning whether it has anything to say in your life today. Or they'll come along with another argument and and say, well, after all, the book itself, the Bible itself contradicts itself. I mean, come on. I mean, how many how many animals went on that ark after all? Two by two or seven at a time? I mean, how did this work? Are you really serious about this? Or are, are you really telling me that, that you believe that, that, that one guy sat down one day and took two, two loaves of bread and, and multiplied it and fed, you know, 10 and 15,000 people and more? And, I mean, are you really serious that you believe? You see what the world wants to do? If it can discredit the miracles, if it can discredit the pieces in the Bible the stories that it tells us and say, well, wait a minute, those, those, I mean, those are hard to believe. Then it can set the whole book aside. You see what they're doing? Or they come along and say the ultimate catch-all that casts doubt on the word and say it's no longer applicable to our world is when they say, well, after all, you can interpret the Bible however you want. Have we heard this before? Right? I mean, after all, you can get the Bible to say anything you want it to say. And, and if it can be interpreted however you want to interpret it, obviously, it's no longer trustworthy and it's no longer valid. It, as if somehow, if I can find one person that is misinterpreting the Bible, and they're out there, there's no doubt about that, they're out there. If I can find one person that's misinterpreting the Bible then I can apply that across the board to every other interpretation of the Bible and say, well, if they misinterpret it, then, well, obviously these people probably did too. This is what the world is trying to do to us. It's trying to get us to believe that this book is no longer valuable, it's no longer valid, and it's no longer trustworthy, and it can no longer be the foundation for truth in our life. This is what the world wants you to to believe. The challenge for us, of course, is to respond to these accusations. And it would be easy for us to say, well, hey, let's open the book and let me let me show you. Let me show you the verses in the book that, that talk about why it was given to us and, and how it's true and how Jesus said that, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And, and he's here in this place. It would be easy for us to open the book and start showing people the validation of the truth, right? But you know what happens when we do that? They say, wait, you're using your own book to prove the validity of 
your own book. You can't do that. You, you can't use your own book to prove the validity of your own book. So they put us in this position and say, well, okay, how can we, as Christians who know the truth about the Bible, how can we show the world that this book can be absolutely trusted? What I want to do this morning is take you to some evidence outside the book. Because you have these conversations, and if you're growing in Christ, I'll guarantee you, you're going to have these conversations with people. Because they're going to try to discredit your faith and take you back, right? So what I want to do this morning is take you to some stuff that you can actually use, that the world accepts as reasonable understanding for making a case of proof, okay? So if you turn to your handout this morning... I couldn't get it up on the slides. I'm not that adept at some of this stuff. Uh, so if you turn to your handout, it's the easiest way, and you can kind of make notes anyway, right? So grab the handout. What I want you to find is that wonderful chart in there under the, the title that says, The Real Truth, Textual Accuracy, okay? Textually accurate. You find it? Okay, that is an awesome chart. Uh, I didn't make it. It comes uh, out of a book by Josh McDowell. Uh, called uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And if you, you want to get arguments, if you want to be able to really engage with people about making the case for the faith, this is a great book. I'll warn you, however, it's about yay thick. Okay, you up for that? Yeah, some people just said, woo, no, not up for that, no. It's about yay thick, but it's, it's an awesome book. Uh, this chart comes out of the book, and it's doing the, what we're doing this morning, talking about what, what are some of the proofs for us about... about why we can trust the Bible, okay? And uh, what he's done here is he's taken uh, some literary standards of how we look at literature and the accuracy of, of historical literature. And so we start with uh, the Iliad by Homer. Uh, heard of that? They still read that in school? High school, they still do that? I don't see young people saying, yeah, I just read it last week, yeah, right? I mean, it's this is a standard piece of literature, right? Well, if you look at, at uh, Homer's uh, Iliad, it was probably written around 800 B.C., and the earliest copies, the earliest manuscripts we have of that document dates back to 400 B.C., so there's a 400-year gap between when it was probably written and the earliest manuscripts that we have of this document, and we have 643 manuscripts that date from that period. Now, the key is that when, when the people who do this look at the manuscripts across the board, across the board, they all agree that those manuscripts are absolutely accepted as accurate. Okay? Now, remember this. We have a 400-year gap, and we have how many copies, manuscripts? 643. Okay? Plant that somewhere. Remember that. Okay? And across the board, all the people that do this work say, this is the standard. This, there is no question that what we have is an absolute accurate representation of Homer's Iliad, right? And then there's, there's other stuff in here. You can go to Plato, right? People are still reading Plato in philosophy classes, you know, dated 400 B.C. The earliest manuscripts we have are 900 um, A.D., 1,300-year gap. And, and we only have about seven of those accurate man manuscripts. Or you can go to Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, 100 to 44 B.C. written, 
900 is the earliest copy, so a thousand years difference, and we only have 10 of those manuscripts, but everybody accepts. It's accurate. This is good stuff. It's accurate, right? And it goes on. The history of Rome and, you know, edition one, edition two, you know, one partial, 19 of those, okay? So you get the gist that all those, from a, from a literary historical standard, those are accepted as without question absolutely valid. You with me? Now look at, flip the page, and look at the New Testament. Now keep in mind, the New Testament was written over a period of years by an assortment of writers from an assortment of locations. Not just one piece from one place by one author, but you got an assortment of authors, assortment of locations, and you look at the data, look at the reality about the New Testament. So it was written from 50 to 100 A.D., Right, so a 50-year span of, of all when all this stuff was written, the earliest copies we have of some of the manuscripts date at 130 A.D. So we're how many years after they've been written? 50 years. So only 50 years after they've been written, we have fragments of texts that prove the validity of the New Testament. Okay, 50 years. You roll it back and you say, well, okay, we got some other stuff from around 200 A.D., so a 100-year gap. By a 100-year gap, we have actual complete books, complete letters, complete manuscripts of the New Testament. And how long is the gap? 100 years. You see that? Okay, roll it back some more. If you go 50 more years to 250 A.D., so it's a 150-year gap, at 150 years, we have copies of the actual New Testament, the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament text, okay? And there's how many years? 150. You with me? 150. Roll it back some more. If you go to 225-year gap, by that time we have over 5,600 copies of the New Testament. 5,600 copies. You roll it back some more and you go to the 400-year gap, by that time we have 24,600 copies of the New Testament. All right, compare line one with the last line we just stopped. Do you remember Homer's Iliad? Right, and there was a how many year gap? 400 year gap, and we have how many copies of the manuscript? 643, right? Uh-huh. Now go to 400 year gap with the New Testament. 400 year gap with the New Testament and we have how many copies? 24,600 accurate copies of the New Testament. And everybody accepts, everybody absolutely accepts that Homer's Iliad, with just those 640-some copies, absolutely accepts, yeah, this is good, this is accurate, this is true stuff, absolutely accurate stuff. And yet when it comes to the New Testament, the world wants you to believe that you can doubt this book, you can question its accuracy, and we have 24,600 texts in the same time period. Do you see? You get it? There's overwhelming, overwhelming evidence the way the world judges these texts. There's just absolutely overwhelming evidence to the accuracy of the text that we have in the New Testament. Well, the next thing they do, the next thing they do is they say, well, okay, all right, you got all those texts, but 
you know what? You just don't have some of the archaeological proof that you need to, for all these stories in there. So, so they'll come along and they'll say, well, you know, like that story about David and Goliath. I mean, after all, come on. A, a young kid kills a hardened warrior who is, you know, three times his size. And besides that, we don't, I mean, that's just a fairy tale. There's no evidence that Goliath ever existed. This was what was thrown at the church for years and years and years and years. That this David and Goliath story, you remember that from Sunday school, right? I mean, it's one of those favorite stories we teach our kids when they're young. It's one of our, you know, grounded stories about growing tall and standing for God in opposition. How God can overcome, right? But the world comes and casts doubt and says, hey, just a fairy tale. It's just a nice little story, but it's a fairy tale because there's no evidence of Goliath. Until, until... In 2005, they were doing an excavation in Gath. Where was Goliath from? Gath? Goliath of Gath? They were doing an excavation in Gath, and they discovered pottery fragments. And on some of the pottery, it had, guess whose name? Goliath. Goliath. We know there was a Goliath in Gath. Or they come along and they say, well, you know, this whole thing with Jesus and, and Jesus being crucified and, and being executed by the Romans in Judea and this guy named Pontius Pilate, they cast doubt and they say, listen, there's, no, there's just no historical evidence that, that there was this guy named Pilate. I mean, that's just part of your fairy tale book. I mean, we can't find it. There's no historical evidence in the, in the writings about the Roman Empire that there was this guy named Pontius Pilate. And if there's no Pontius Pilate, well, then that cast doubt and question on, was there Jesus? Was there a crucifixion? Was there a resurrection? Do you see how this gets to the heart of what we're about? Mm -hmm. They cast doubt on that until, until the archaeologists discovered in 1961 in an excavation in Caesarea where they uncovered an uh, amphitheater built by Rome, and it was built to the glory of Rome. And on each column in the amphitheater was the story of some glory experience of Rome and the people who participated that in that. And on one of those columns, there is a line on one of those columns that refers to, guess who? Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. What the archaeologists just tell us. Bible's right. Bible's right. You see how this works? How the world tries to cast doubt on trusting the word, and yet God keeps leading us to and providing us with repeated evidence. Hey, this is true stuff. You can trust this word. This is true stuff. We've got manuscripts that are overwhelming evidence. We have archaeological evidence that keeps coming to us again and again, and it always confirms the truth that's in the scripture. If you want more, if you want more, hey, look at how the Bible has impacted the lives of great people. Look at, just look at people. Look how the Bible and the evidence in, in people's personal lives of how, how the Bible has impacted their life. So you can take somebody like uh, Abraham Lincoln. Cool guy, did some great things in the world. Abraham Lincoln says, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the goodness from the Savior of the world 
is communicated to us through this book. How important was the Bible to Abraham Lincoln? Or you can go to uh, Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster says, If there is anything in my thoughts or style to commend, the credit is due to my parents. Isn't he a good son? Huh? What a good son. To my parents for instilling in me an early love of the scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instruction and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. How important was the Bible? Or Horace Greeley, it is impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. Have I given you enough evidence? Isn't this awesome? So the world wants you to believe the Bible can't be trusted. And yet even by worldly standards, we get evidence over and over and over again that the Bible is absolutely true. It confirms what the Bible itself says it's here for. I mean, the, the key for us is to understand that God wants us to have this word and that he has preserved this word just for you. I mean, what we have in the Bible is what God wants us to have. And he has preserved it over time. And the Bible tells us that's what he's done. If, if you look in, in the scripture itself now and you go to 2 Timothy and you get Paul writing to a young, young Timothy who's, who's starting his ministry... Paul says about, uh, about the Bible, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is such a cool text. Do, do you remember in, in Genesis when, uh, when it talks about God creating Adam? And it talks about God, you know, kneeling down and forming Adam out of the ground, right? And then, and then he gets him all formed. And what, and what does God do? It says he kneels down and he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of man. Remember that? Did you hear what Paul just told you? What God has done to the Bible? It is God, what? Breathe. Did you see that? It is God breathed. God has breathed life into this book. It is God breathed. Just like God brought the breath of life into Adam and created life in this book, there is this, this incredible breath and presence of God that can translate and transfer into our life. When we get grounded on this book, we experience that energy and that spirit of fusion of God's breath. We can trust this book. That's what Paul's telling us. It is, it is the breath of life for us to give us guidance and training and righteousness. Yeah, it's teaching, and yes, yeah, sometimes it needs to rebuke us, can correct us, but it's going to mold us and shape us. It's going to make us the right kind of people that God wants us to be, to have the, the right kind of life that God dreamed for us from the beginning of time. And, and Jesus affirms this before he leaves the disciples. He even describes the permanent nature of the Bible. That even though the world wants to get rid of it, 
he describes the permanent nature of it. He says in Matthew 5, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Or he says in Matthew 24, Luke 16, similar stuff. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will. You see that? I mean, the whole creation can disappear. The whole universe can cease to exist. But what will never cease to exist is the strength and the truth of his word. Isn't that awesome? It will never cease to exist. Because why? Because it's exactly what God wants us to have in our life. And Jesus tells us why we need it. He tells us why we need it. He does it in John 17 as he's praying for you. Okay, so he's in a prayer here, and he's thinking about each one of us, his disciples and each one of us, as he's praying this prayer. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. And what is truth? Your word is truth. How important is the Bible to us? It is the way that we grow to become the person and the people God dreams us to be. The word sanctify there, that's a great church word, isn't it? It's a great church word that just means growing in holiness, growing to become the person God wants us to be. The Bible is so important to us because it is what we're grounded on, it's what shapes us and what fashions us into the people that God wants us to be. This is why the world fears the Bible. This is why Satan fears the Bible. Because he knows, Satan knows, that if we get serious about the Word in our life, we will become such incredible people. He wants to discredit the truth and say the Bible can't be trusted because he knows if we get serious, if Christ Church gets sold out serious, and each one of us gets serious about putting the Bible in our life every day, evil trembles at that thought. It trembles at that thought. Now, let me give you a few quick tips, okay? A few quick tips as you as you look at the Bible uh, in your own life. And and the, the folks that are skipping did an awesome job, didn't they? Just trying to bring this to us. Uh, one of them is, it tells us the book isn't just one book, right? The Bible isn't just one book. It's a library. So treat it like a library, okay? Now, don't, don't treat it like a book. You know what happens to so many people? They treat it like the book and say, hey, good intentions. I'm going to read the Bible. And so they start on page one. And they get to page <laughs> genealogy page, right? And then they go, oh, okay, all right, right? Yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't treat it like a book where you start on page one and you got to go to the end, right? No, treat it like a library, right? Open up this book and read this book and then, and then go read another book. And, and maybe God's speaking to you and you say, oh, man, I just need some, some poetry in my life, right? I, I just need some soaring poetry in my life. Great! Go read the Psalms and, and, and go read the Song of Solomon and go read that beautiful stuff, Right? Or, or I need some prophecy. Okay, go read Daniel. and you know, Or I, I just need some good history. I need some good history. Great, it's there. right? But, but treat it like a library and just enjoy the books for what they are. 
right? Enjoy them for what they are. And just enjoy the read. Just enjoy the read. Accept the Bible and what God is doing in the Bible for, for what it is. So when you read uh, an allegory, like when Jesus says, if sin, you know, if something causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Right. I mean, seriously? No, of course not. It's an, an allegory. So, you know, take it in. Treat it like that. Don't make it more than it is. Just take it in. Let it pour over you and say, oh, that's an awesome thought. I should get sin out of my life like that. I get it. Okay. Right? So just enjoy the read. Right? And then last, listen. When you read the book, read it not just with your eyes, but read it with your ears. Read it with your ears. Okay? Here, here's what I do. I get a new Bible like every three years, three to five years at the most, right? Usually around every three years, I get a new Bible. Why? Well, because when I start with my Bible, you know, I'm doing my study and I'm doing my reading and stuff, and, man, I'm highlighting this and I'm scribbling this, and, and while I'm doing that, I'm listening, right? And, and God makes something aware in my life, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome, and I scribble that in there, right? So every time when I go back to that page, what do you suppose I see and I listen to again? Well, same word, because, wow, God spoke to me, and I wrote it down. It's like, oh, I remember that. That's awesome. That's great. But, you know, every three years, i got to get a new Bible, and i got to read that same stuff over again without all those notes, without all those highlights. Why? Because God has a new word for me. God has a new word for me. I need to listen to it anew. And, and if I have just those notes there, I'm going to just get my eyes on that, and I'm going to say, oh, okay, well, okay, that's what God was saying. Okay. But if I get a blank page and God reads in, into my life again and speaks and I'm listening, I can get a new word. Isn't that exciting? So just enjoy the read and listen. Not just look with your eyes, but listen with your ears how God can speak to you in this word. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the incredible gift of your word. It is the foundation for life. It is the rule and norm for truth. We just ask today that you would just equip us to stand on that word. Help us to not listen to the world and help us instead to win the world over. And just show them the truth. Show them how this is your word that we can stand on, we can listen to, we can just let breathe into and over our lives. Sanctify us with your word. Make us through this word what you want us to be, Father. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.